Hello comrades and welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Spectre. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Stephanie Martin from the Glasgow branch of the Young Communist League of Britain. Stephanie, it's great to have you here. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, perfect. So just to get started then, obviously a wee introduction from yourself and I think we should jump straight into the first point, which is, you know, when we talk about Marxist feminism, the impression of women within a capitalist society is always, I think, the, the best place to start off at when we see these these images and these roles that are, are forced on to women. And so just to get your thoughts on that. Um, aye, absolutely. <clears throat> so I'll just start off by introducing myself a wee bit first. So um, obviously I'm Stephanie and I'm the women's officer for the Glasgow branch of the YCL. Um, I work in early years education and I'm a Unison steward. Um, so that's, that's just a wee bit about me. I also did my um, undergraduate dissertation on gender history. So I've got a real interest in um, sex-based oppression and gender and especially taking that Marxist feminist focus on it. So the, the, impression, the, uh, the impression of women within capitalism is, is Marxist that we understand that we make our own history, um, not as we please, but the way that we, we inherit circumstances that exist already. So I think when, you, when we're talking about the impression of women within capitalism, you also need to bear in mind um, the, the aspects of this which have been transmitted from previous modes of production. Um, within class society, so especially in Britain, where we live in a sort of a, a semi-feudal regime with the, the presence of a monarchy still remaining. And uh, you can see how that permeates through the impressions of women um, within that system, because if you think about the Queen and women of royalty, they are used often as examples um, for British women um, to, to, to enact their own behaviour based off of. Um, and it's all about um, modesty, chastity, um, duty, and probably most importantly, fertility. So I, I think um, in, the, in the more modern context, ever since women were brought into the workforce during the war on, on almost like a, a more equal basis with men, the, the expectations of women have changed with that. So during industrialization, women role within household production became a bit less valued. The work that was done in the factories, um, predominantly by men, was seen as more important. So it, it, it was a bit of a designation of women to the private sphere of the household. Um, and you had all these sort of Victorian ideologies of the angel in the household and that sort of stuff. And it, it was like the sort of super mum vibes. Uh, a, a woman that can do everything in home, in the home, keep on top of everything, raise the children, and still look good while doing it. And then that has remained to a certain extent post World War Two. Um, like I said, when women were brought into the workforce on a bit more frequency than what they had previously, because the women are expected to work out in the economy and and sort of like production, but also still have those expectations of keeping on top of the reproduction and the reproduction of the labour force through providing the meals for the family, doing the cooking, the washing, the cleaning, all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's the sort of expectations on women come from both angles then. And I think with, we'll probably come on to talk about it, but with the onset of liberal feminism and any sort of bourgeois feminisms, there's, there's this sort of idea that women should be successful at work 
and it's like you used to idealize um, female business owners and things like that, but it doesn't actually do anything to address the issues of women on mass. For every one female business owner, there's a million women that are still being paid less than men for equal work and often have to work part time because of that dual responsibility of the household and of um, their role in the economy outside of the household. And, and now we've also got um, the, the commercialization of femininity. Women are bombarded constantly with images of what they're supposed to look like. You're supposed to be thin. You're supposed to be have long eyelashes, be absolutely perfect, long hair, white usually as well, um, which is why we're seeing like in, in Nigeria. I watched a documentary recently and um, in Nigeria, there's a lot of women using skin, skin bleaching products which isn't healthy for them, but it's because of this ideal of beauty being a, a, a pale thing, a white thing. So there's obvious race implications with that, but there's class-based implications with that as well, because it costs women a lot of money to look like the ideal um, stereotype of a woman, what you should look like. It costs you a lot of money, and there's been studies done um, into that, the amount of time that it takes women to to, to, to look good basically compared to men and also the money that it that that is involved in that it takes more out of your wages than what it would for a guy to to do grooming um essentially and then i think that a lot of these things culminate in a, a whole plethora of mental health issues that affect women and um, most notably eating disorders women are twice as likely to have anorexia in britain than men so i'll leave it there for now <laughs> Yeah, no, that's brilliant, Comrade. A lot to uh, a lot to unpack there, especially you know we see that sort of restriction on the societal roles that you know it's perceived that women can play. Oftentimes, when even when women are involved in you know revolutionary activities or something political, it's deemed as unladylike. You only have to look as far as a, the suffragette movement to see that. As well as when we talk about the obviously skincare products, the, the this impression of what a, a woman's supposed to look like, the damaging effects that has especially on on young women as well you know it's in high school as well it can often be a, a social battleground there for many people and you know uh, you're most impoverished you know they, they feel the full brunt of that they've not got the money to afford these skincare products these you know fads that come into place through social media and influencers and the like so you know there's a lot of a lot of poison in that uh, impression of a woman that's always portrayed by the bourgeois and we see that not just in Britain, but like you've mentioned, across the globe as well, and how race also plays a, a factor in that there. So it can be very, very damaging to, you know, this, the the mindset of women and, you know, what they're capable of and what they're supposed to do. You know, they're, they're restricted in that sense, and this image almost tells them what they they can and can't do already, and it's, it's, it's sickening to see, which I think perfectly leads us on to the, the next point of talking about, you know, Marxist, Marxist feminism, versus liberal feminism and mm-hmm. you know the talking points we've just mentioned certainly correlate with that if you want to give a bit of an insight into this uh, i um, i think it's the understanding of the root cause of women's oppression is fundamentally different from a marxist perspective than it is from a, a liberal feminist perspective because marxists understand the root of female oppression as being at the very foundation of class society itself um, because of the development of private property because obviously we we know that that private property is is supposed to pass through bloodlines in very early human society the only way to trace a a lineage was through the mother because that was the only evidence-based way of knowing who the parent of that child was so then you get the introduction of marriage and that's a, a woman being 
basically given to a man um, by their father usually. So they become the property of, of a man and therefore their offspring is also the property of that man. So liberal feminists don't have that understanding um, underpinning their, their criticism. Um, of, of what they call patriarchy and that, that's that patriarchy is a, a term that um, quite often you find Marxists prefer not to use because it's it's rooted in this belief that there's a division of um, sexes almost like a division of classes so I, and I, I think the the lack of the complete lack of historical analysis of women's oppression within liberal feminism is, is the, the, the main problem with it and uh, Clara Zetkin quite rightly said that um, bourgeois feminism and liberal feminism sets the sexes up against each other, whereas working class women know that their enemy isn't the working class male, the, the, the working class men, because they're in the same position, essentially. They, and, and there's no, we, we need a united working class in order to see any sort of real transformational change for working class women. We don't, we don't recognise at all that, 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 that division between sexes, whereas for um, the, the, the bourgeoisie, you're competing with men for the jobs for the the spaces at university so that that was when in the sort of the first and second waves of feminism you see sometimes an, a, a, a bit of an overemphasis on things like property access to education and yes like equal pay for equal work that that is also one of our primary goals and rightly so but um, it's it's because of an understanding of men as their competitors rather than for it, trying to seek any sort of real transformational change. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely perfect. I mean, yeah, liberal feminism, when it's seen in action, is absolutely infuriating to watch happen. Uh, yeah. And it's, a like you said, a complete lack of, you know, historical analysis, you know, this neglection of the mode of production itself and private property and like you rightly says, it, it pits men against women. And for the working class, that's extremely damaging. This only creates a further division that weakens us. You know, why cut off half of, you know, your comrades? Uh, and oftentimes with liberal liberal feminism, it falls deeply into that pit of identity politics as well. That's what I was going to just add there. And, and that, that's a slippery slope because... You can't, you can't just simply identify as an oppressed group. Like you are either oppressed by the system or you're not, essentially. And, and Marxists understand that women are oppressed because of their role in reproduction and, and that the system itself forces women to stay in that role because we don't socialise childcare or domestic housework. And you still see women dominate in industries where the, the job is most closely aligned with traditional female roles. Like women, in my own workplace, it's all women now work in a nursery, just for example. And then women dominate the care sectors. And you see that these are also the, the lower, lowest paid sectors as well. So that, that analysis is completely missing from liberal feminism. And identity politics just doesn't account for it unfortunately, and I think we need to be careful of anything that seeks to muddy the waters of what, what we can define a woman as, because if, if we can't define what a woman is, we, we can't fight against women's oppression. Anything that, that muddies that, that water serves to benefit capitalism only. Yeah, well said, comrade, especially, you know, looking at liberal feminism in that sense and muddying the waters, you know, oftentimes people think when as you mentioned, the patriarchy, that these ideas solely come from this patriarchy, when in fact, you know, bourgeoisie women are the one also doing this, you know, uh, capitalists take no interest in 
you know, through sexual divides within their own. They're going to divide the working class. There's plenty of women out there exploiting other women. That's seen, you know, daily, whether they're petty social media influencers or they're the, the marketers of hygiene products, skincare routines and everything else in between. But yeah, I mean, especially looking there about, you know, defining what a woman is, you know, when we talk about people putting themselves in oppressed groups, you know, they don't face the same issues that women are facing, be it biologically and within workplaces as well. Uh, and I guess that really does lead us on to the, the next topic, Roe versus Wade, decision that's happened in America, which has been a really frightening uh, case to watch unfold. Uh, I'm just wondering if we can get your thoughts, you know, your opinions and what this could mean for uh, women, not just in America, but indeed across the globe. Yeah, so you're right to say it is, it is very worrying and it does have implications that go beyond the boundaries of America because we live in what what is essentially a, a, an American empire, <laughs> a global American empire, especially when it comes to culture. And we've also seen here prominent politicians come out in support of restrictions to abortion rights. So it's it's one for the watching. Um, and we've had a fantastic display of solidarity um, in our own country. There have been multiple protests um, and demonst- demonstrations of solidarity with our American sisters um, and those affected by this decision in America. And also a reinstatement of our own support here and our demands for it full reproductive rights. I, I just I, I want to draw your attention as well to some of the other things that are going on in relation to the Roe v. Wade situation in America. There's multiple companies who are now saying that they will pay for um, their employees if they live in a state where abortion is now banned to travel to another state in order to access abortion care, but with the caveat that they cannot be a member of a trade union to do so. So it's, it's very clear there what the priorities are and if you can imagine your employer paying paying for a, such a procedure for you, the, the the weight of that hanging over you, it gives your employer far too much control over you as as an individual and as a worker, um, because they're get, they're stepping into your private life then essentially, and you owe them after that. They could use that against you if you try to leave. Um, they could make that public and it could end up destroying your career, creating a taboo against you. Because there's all sorts of complicated reasons why women would seek to terminate a pregnancy with the economic factors being the number one. So there's a company called Match Group who are responsible for um, dating apps like Tinder. And they came under fire for supporting a Republican lobbying group uh, that works to undermine abortion rights. While at the same time, they've been having a pro-choice badge that you can use on your account on these dating websites. And they were one of the companies that are saying they're going to pay for their employees to go and get an abortion. So there's just that complete double standard there where for, for publicity reasons, they'll say, oh, we, we support a woman's right to choose. Of course we do. Whereas behind closed doors, actually, no, they don't. And essentially, that that's something that we as, as Marxists need to highlight there, that the interests of private companies and private capital are, are contradictory to our interests as people. They, it's, they aren't able to operate on ethical grounds because the motivating factor is always going to be profit. Yeah, absolutely there. I mean, we see that, you know, it goes back to women being treated as property there. You know, companies are going to dive headfirst into this because fundamentally it's, it's, it's cheaper than uh, maternity leave as well. So they're going to be jumping at the races and like you said, really pressuring their employees to to take this offer and it's it's going to really hang over their heads uh, uh, and be a you know an influencing factor the economic situation in america and 
especially for working class people who are close to the red line, they're probably going to, nine times out of ten, they're going to take that uh, that abortion being indebted to their, their employer because they can't afford to, to have a child. The workplace then don't have any policies in place to support childcare. They've been wiped away. But yeah, looking looking at Roe versus Wade and uh, it's, it's something that's really almost difficult to wrap your head around when you see the, the many sort of groups you know, in, involved in this, especially in the, the liberal movement and even within, you know, the Republicans, when we look at the Republican Party, we can see how how deep uh, they're invested in maintaining this motion, uh, like you've clearly mentioned where, you know, the, that dating app there. And, you know, it comes back to almost like a pink washing that always happens with, with companies. They, they portray to, to be on our side and everything or uh, we get cute wee messages and cute wee stickers on their apps and then uh, you know they're deep involved with you know breaking women's rights and you know betraying the working class as a whole so it's absolutely frightening to see that and in the global stage as you've quite rightly mentioned the culture side of things america plays a big part in its cultural attitudes across the rest of the globe you only have to look as far as hollywood to see that and american american values or so-called american values are oftentimes pushed well well far into europe and are often dissected and get their own strains and variants. Uh, and nine times out of ten, especially in Europe, lead to fascism and certain strains of fashion that come from these values that are aimed at controlling women and, you know, a further suppression of the working class entirely. So looking at this decision and looking at the, the attitudes that are coming from different M- MSPs, MPs, and everything else in between here in Britain, it's been a resurgence. This has been something that's allowed these these vermin to crawl out of the woodworks and really stand proud because they're seeing more and more people come out and, you know, it's frightening that they feel confident enough to do that. So it's certainly something that's, that's very scary. And I guess when we talk about these enemies, these roaches who are now coming out and bravely stating that they're happy to, you know, suppress women, we only have to look as far as here in Scotland to see one of our enemies, John Mason from the SNP. Just wondering if you can give a bit more information on the protection of abortion rights here in Scotland and the role that people like John Mason play in you know, suppressing that right. Yeah, um, so, so John Mason has been attending some of these um, anti-abortion uh, vigils, if you could call them that, outside um, sexual health clinics and outside hospitals in Glasgow. He represents uh, the Shettleston area um, in Glasgow. But he's, he's, he's been very public about his opinion on abortion and he's, he wants to restrict women's rights to accessing that vital health care service. He even tabled a motion in Holyrood to try and restrict abortion rights here. This is just, this has taken us back a century or more here because you can't restrict abortion rights because what will happen is women will continue to have abortions. They'll just do it unsafely. So it is, it is a vital life-saving necessity. A lot of the time, women need an abortion for medical reasons as well. If we look at the case in America, again, there are states in America who that, that are, are not permitting abortions on the grounds of an ectopic pregnancy. And an ectopic pregnancy is when um, the fetus begins to form in the fallopian tube. Um, rather than in the uterus, and that can kill a woman. The, the baby, the, the, there isn't going to be a baby from that fetus. It can't develop um, in the fallopian tube. So you're not trying to save a life there by preventing that abortion. You're simply damaging someone else's life or possibly killing them. So it is, it's vital that we keep 
our discussion here based in fact um, and that no matter what your religious opinions are that's fine that's fair enough for you you don't have a right to push that opinion on anyone else or to restrict anybody else's rights based on that yeah absolutely i mean here in scotland it's always sickening to see these these zealots these fanatics out in the streets especially outside abortion grounds you know they're continuously disrupting appointments sometimes they're not even pregnancy appointments they're just actual sexual health exactly. appointments for uh, stds and uh, and other things like that and they're dis- disrupting them and you know that has a significant mental health effect on those attending and nine times out of ten for these protests are they're men <laughs> they're yeah, men exactly. they're very rarely women and if they are they're well let's just say they're a bit too old to be catching up to the day's topics but it's frightening to see when we look at John Mason, like you say, when we've got these people in power, a man in power, a man in power who is attempting to control women. It's again, it pushes this this idea that you know that men like him should be at the forefront of this, and when they make these decisions, it can make women who perhaps don't feel empowered as they are now. They might be outside from an organisation. They don't know how to you know stand up for themselves. This can make them feel even more powerless because it's all they can see is a man telling them what to do and attempt to pass motions and that again has a, a significant mental health impact and you know can really really damage somebody and absolutely see if you go on um back off scotland's website they've got a lot of personal accounts of people who've been harassed outside these clinics and including one example i was just reading the other day it was a 17 year old um, woman who had been sexually assaulted and was attending one of these clinics um, and was was called a teenage murderer outside the, the clinic. Just complete ignorance there, and the the depth of impact that that will have had on that woman is probably untold. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially when we talk about the protection of abortion rights here, uh, back off Scotland have, have done a, a really great, great job, and they continue to do a great job of alerting people uh, as well uh, of these people outside uh, our sexual health uh, facilities and treatment centres. And uh, oftentimes, some providing support for them outside of the health services, and uh, sometimes escorting them as well. So, a shout out to Tobacco Scotland here and the, the work they're doing. But certainly, when we we talk about the the many factors that force women, I think that the correct word to sometimes get an abortion is always that economic factor, the fact that they're so impoverished that sometimes they they can't afford the child, uh, they can't afford childcare, can't afford food milk everything like that it's become so restricted now and as somebody's worked in retail it's it was frightening to see over the course of the pandemic security tags being put on these items knowing full well that you know this is what young mothers are are having to steal because they just can't afford to in these trying times and when we look at the 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 need for a free unrestricted access to hit sexual health services it's absolutely vital especially in today's world so i'm just wanting to to get your your thoughts on that especially on that economic factor because the the statistics for that are frightening um i so i think like we were touching on earlier um the solution to women's oppression um in part lies on a socialization of childcare and of like domestic work but it's it's also dependent on that like you say free unrestricted access to sexual health services and that isn't just the right to have an abortion or the right to contraception. Um, it's also about the accessibility of these services. In Glasgow, there's been a cutback um, on Sandyford clinics. Um, it's, there's fewer services being offered across fewer locations. Um, and 
there's certain parts of the city that are a bit isolated, um, like in, in Castle Milk, they closed down the Sandyford there. So women from Castle Milk are now having to take the bus elsewhere in the city to to get these services. So if they, I think the, the, the nearest one they would have to go to now would be the, the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, which is a, a long bus trip away. And you take into account the unreliability of public transport and the prices of public transport right now as well. It is very exclusive. And I think this um, these matters are born into the fact that although overall um, the rates of teenage pregnancy have fallen in recent years because of a public health campaign to really target that, um, the, the rate of teenage pregnancy for working class women remains largely the same. So it's, it's middle class women that are now accessing abortion at a, a more frequent rate. Um, middle class teenagers um, but working class women is, this is still a, a crucial issue for them even though it might not be affordable to have a child um, actually accessing an, a, 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 any sort of service to terminate that pregnancy is another matter um, and I think if we lived in a society where childcare was socialised um, well, and by that I mean made the responsibility of everyone not the private responsibility of the, the parents and therefore predominantly the mother um, within that sort of family setup. Um, if, if, if we change it so that ch children are seen for what they are and they're, they're a, a valuable asset to society, they're the future workforce and they do a hell of a lot more than that before they even get to that point. Um, common sense, we know how valuable children are, we should treat them so, as such and have real proper free childcare for everyone that is, that is up to the highest quality possible. And that the workers in that, that industry also get a, a fair deal for the, the vital work that they put in. And I think if that was there, there would probably be less women seeking to terminate a pregnancy in the first place. Yeah, comrade, absolutely. I mean, the, the economic factor is the, the be-all and end-all reason, really, isn't it? I mean, when you, you talk about that example, we're having to get the bus out to these places, you know, that's a portion of somebody's wage, somebody who is no doubt already feeling the, the full force of this so-called cost of living crisis. And when they have to, to part with that money to have to go all the way out to, to get an abortion, it really does take a lot on their wallet, on their purse. I mean, that, if that issue, you know, becomes to the case where then they're forced to, to have this pregnancy to, to carry out purely because they, they're struggling to find the financial means to either travel or to even be seen for a screening or or anything else like that if the the lists are, are, are beginning to get that long due to a poorly funded you know health service that the, the Tories have decimated and the SNP have you know failed to provide for as well then it really forces women into a corner and when a woman is forced to to give birth to a child that she can't fully care for then that becomes a case of financial bondage they're, mm -hmm. they're stuck in the task of you know going to work and then looking after the child and it's there's no free time for you know women and it's it can become tough for a mother then but they feel that their their whole life is encapsulated purely on two things work and care work and care and that's all they have time for and we've talked a lot today about you know the the mental health impact that this has on women because it's such a such a damaging thing that can happen but it's, it's quite common for young mothers to feel isolated mm -hmm having recently given birth and you know stepping into this role that they that isn't really taught of well in school as, as well I think it's another important part to mention as well you know it's off, oftentimes glossed over when it comes to childcare as well there's longer and longer waiting lists happening for certain nurseries and you know sometimes 
uh, families will pay out of pocket to to send their child to a nursery that oftentimes they can't afford, but they know that it has to be done purely because there's nobody there to to care for uh, the child if both parents are at work. So the economic factor is absolutely frightening. It's one of the ma- most restrictive things. And when we talk about restrictions, you know, we, we really do need a free, unrestricted access to sexual health services, especially for young people. Uh, I, I know I just mentioned there about the lack of education and the lack of sexual education in school and it's just not taught enough and young people don't know where to go for guidance and sometimes they can take matters into their own hands which only leads to to death to you know mutilation of themselves and that's that shouldn't be happening in today's world so the economic factor has to be tackled you know in all fronts across all areas because it's affecting every single working class woman in today's world. So uh, it's absolutely frightening to look at there. And when we talk about there, I guess it's sort of this final point here, when we talk about, you know, combating this and really fighting for the emancipation of the proletariat and the the proletariat women, what role can men play in aiding this emancipation? Men can play a, a massive role because we, as Marxists, we can't, we can't see a society where women could be emancipated outside of socialism. So we need a united working class in order to achieve that. Um, so the role that men can play there is absolutely pivotal. But until we get to that point, I think the, the main thing is to understand um, men's role in reproducing um, what we can call patriarchal attitudes, like misogyny, and to be reflective about the attitudes that they might have that could be very subconscious and deeply seated. Um, and to rise to that challenge and try and adapt and change and read, um, particularly engage with Marxist feminist literature, I think is really important for, for men and to, to work with um, the working class sisters as well. And I think um, if, if you, looking at like just the situation of, of a family as a, as a microcosm of the type of change that we're, we're trying to see here, um, men within their own households can take on a, a more hands-on role in um, housework and in child rearing and that that is down to to each household because of the way things are at the moment but that's a small thing that, that, that can be done as well I, I think um, like I said the education aspect is the most important part if, if we if we get to a point where families aren't operating in the old sort of Freudian way of things anymore, then that that does have the potential to be really transformational because earlier on I touched on eating disorders. A, a large um, body of work has been done into the role of that family setting and um, reproducing eating disorders for young women. Um, if you imagine you, you, you grow up in a scenario where you predominantly see women sacrificing their own self-care to provide for others I mean I, I when I think about my own upbringing my mum didn't eat very much at the table compared to everybody else just for example and I'm sure that's a that's a, a situation that most people probably resonate with the mum sacrifices to give to others and then if you look at that and relate it to eating disorders it's about self-sacrifice and quite often with like anorexia for example um, sufferers will be that they'll be on top of feeding others and they're always concerned about the diets of others but they'll neglect their own um, needs and their own self-care while doing that so I, I think it's and, and there's not enough that can be said about the role of the family in this um, and in the reproduction of um, oppressive gender ideologies I, I think we also need to try and step away from the sort of toxic heteronormativity that exists in society as well because families that aren't the traditional married male-female couple 
can and should be able to raise children. Um, how, how many children, I don't know off the top of my head, how many children are needing a home right now in, in Scotland alone that are um, in the care of the state and are looking for someone to foster or adopt them. And, and there needs to be a wee bit more of a, a leeway given there for atypical family units to, to form and to, to thrive in society. And the, the, there's, there's an aspect of heteronormativity that continuously puts women in the submissive role. And there's like this sort of currency of sex almost where it's, it's like it, it, you're, you're deemed worth more as a woman if you're desired by loads of men. And it's, it's very toxic and it's damaging, like we say, to women's mental health, but also to men's mental health. So I, I think a, another aspect is just for men to understand that they are not separate from women's struggle, but it is part of their own as well. Yeah, spot on, comrade. I mean, certainly for men looking to play their part and I don't want them coming in very condescending and taking that white knight mantle <laughs> that they're often supposed to be portrayed to and you know with, with bourgeois influence but yeah certainly we men standing side by side with our with women comrades is the the utmost that they need to do and especially looking at theory as well you know understand the, the marxist feminist theory behind this and the the, the true struggle and the true reason and the true implications that uh, are the desires for the liberation of women within a capitalist society i mean certainly when we talk about uh, roles you've just you mentioned there a good part going on uh, these sort of uh, roles and these impressions that have been put on women we can see that on men as well you know they're told you know that child rearing is feminine they're tr- told that cleaning is feminine uh, and these are roles that you know that create these class divisions even within you know families themselves you know that whether it be the, the mother to uh, do the housework and it's uh, solely on the, the man to go to work. And these are these are damaging roles uh, and it only co- causes divisions within families as well. So certainly something that, you know, men have to look out for. And like you said, that those can be deep-rooted, those can be subconscious. Uh, some people might not think of, of them, but through education and through, you know, understanding those ideas can be wiped away, it can be removed because it, it is a poison uh, that has to be eradicated. As well as that, also looking at, uh, like you said, about foster care, it's always the the number one counter-argument, certainly to use with these pro-life activists. They're so pro-life that they they won't even adopt children. That's how pro-life they are. (laughs) It's utterly hypocritical and downright shocking uh, to their own stance that they, they take. Uh, but certainly more has to be done in this as well, especially for combating the heteronormativity of this, you know, uh, understanding what a family really is. These are roles that it's not taken on by any sex, uh, oftentimes in, in gay marriages, gay relationships, always that question that's asked, who wears the pants, implying who's the male, who's the female in the relationship, which is utterly ridiculous. And it's just another stepping stone that we have to combat and fighting for the emancipation of the working class as a whole. But yeah, just going off from that comment, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you today. Just want to see if you've got any, you know, final talking points and where can we find you on social media and that? Uh, yeah, so I'll just draw your attention to a current YCL campaign that's in development um, against sex worker toolkits that are now being rolled out in universities across England, but that we're expecting to start coming into play in Scotland as well pretty soon. So the sex worker toolkits basically are guides being issued to students and staff at universities um, that that we argue essentially encourage um, prostitution as a viable source of income. It legitimises the view that, quote, sex workers work, whereas what we say is that 
it's it's not work because the, the vagina is not the workplace. Do you know what I mean? That we're talking about women's bodies here. Um, it's it's not like it, it's it's actually incomparable to what what we think of as as labour as as work. Um, and it's it's unrealistic as well because I'm sure it's over ninety percent of women in prostitution want to get out at some point. Um, it's seen as a temporary thing for those who are in it. Usually, it's not empowering for the majority of women that are that are in sex work um, or prostitution. That they're they're at risk constantly of assault, of violence, and and, and it's it worth noting that that permeates out with sex work as well because there was a US study done um, that found that men who purchase sex are eight times more likely than other men to rape and commit violence towards women. And, and it just this propagating an idea that you can purchase a female's body is toxic for the whole of society. And as a result of the backlash against these sex worker toolkits, Leicester University, who were the pioneers of it, have now withdrawn their sex worker toolkit. So that's great news. But we need to the, the campaign needs to be rolled out anyway because we need to say no to this and offer instead our analysis of the situation and that we we believe in the Nordic model, um, which is involves the abolition of um, prostitution altogether. And I think one of the most shocking aspects of the sex worker toolkit that Leicester put out was the way they tried to describe um, the sex work industry as diverse and therefore some sort of like great new liberal fad um, because of the presence of the, the over-representation of black and LGBT people involved in sex work, rather than seeing that for what it is, which is the fact that women, black people and LGBT people are more likely to be in precariousness when it comes to their income. And that's what makes them go into prostitution as a means of income. What they're saying is, oh no, it's a really diverse industry and it's really inclusive. That is a complete false analysis of what's really going on there. Um, and I would encourage anybody listening to have a look out for that campaign as it starts to get off the ground. And in terms of where you can find me on social media, I'm not really that active, but I'm, I'm on Twitter as at Glass Onion. Yeah, it sounds like a great uh, campaign, comrade. I'm really looking forward to see how that develops. It's always a very interesting subject to talk about sex work, especially here in Britain, these toolkits. You know, that's, that's diabolical. As you've mentioned there, in these universities and that talk of this diverseness within uh, the sex industry it's you know it's an industry it's a, a market so this diverseness is just an expansion of that and you know the different markets that this liberal movement can tap into to you know exploit at the end of the day and that's what it is you know this idea that you can purchase a moon for 30 minutes an hour to do what you want is diabolical and it, it perpetrates those ideas that we're finding within society that create this misogyny for the working class and that's that's damaging and as a whole and and this often relates to when we talk about liberal feminism marxist uh, marxist feminism again you know this this divide between uh, the two and you know the the complete ignorance of the liberal feminism is this idea that prostitution is is liberating it's it's not liberating you know it's, it's a it's a woman forced into that situation and when we see in the, the sex industry and, you know, past sex workers and, and porn stars, they come out time and time again and say the abuse that they've they've took uh, within a, a company, an industry, and the fact that they hated it, it was diabolical, they, they couldn't stand it. But yet we're supposed to believe that the sex industry is some form of emancipation and control when it's the exact opposite. So, yeah, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and like I says, uh, looking forward to 
to that campaign uh, flourishing in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Catch you later, comrade. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again, comrades, for tuning in to another episode of Spectre. In the description below, I'll include the link for Stephanie's Twitter account, as well as the link to Back Off Scotland. It is vital, comrades, that we play our part in the emancipation of women. Without this emancipation, there cannot be socialism. We must fight any ideology that seeks to oppress women in the workplace, in the home, or even in the streets. This effort is an effort in which we do so hand in hand with our sister comrades. It is vital that men play an important part in this and standing and listening with our female comrades. Our failure to do so will see the failure of the liberation of the working class as a whole. We cannot afford to compromise on the needs of our female comrades or neglect the importance of their role in our revolutionary movement. After all, women hold up half the sky. 